church? How are we doing? Good? Good? Me too, me too. So last Sunday, Ian preached, and he started off his sermon making fun of my sermon from the week before. Um, so I was thinking about, you know, how do I start this thing, and I thought, you know, never mind, I'll just, I'm going to be the bigger man. <clears throat> but have you noticed how tight his pants are? Like, we get it, man. You're really skinny. Cool. Like, your wife dresses you well. Whatever. Anyway. <laughs> um, if you have your Bibles, um, go ahead and open them to First Samuel chapter 1. We're going to spend a lot of time there. Um, if there are Bibles near you, grab it, open it up. We're, we're staying in that one place, and I want you to know that I'm not making this stuff up. First uh, Samuel chapter 1. Uh, and before we get there, let me just like set the scene, set the context here of what's happened up to this point in the story. So in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're with me so far. You've heard that. Okay. Part of creating this earth, he created these humans who proceeded to totally just jack up this earth. And so he floods them out, and he reboots it, and he, and, he, and he starts over. And very quickly, the humans jack up the earth again. So God says, all right, no more floods. I'm going to take this Abraham guy. I'm going to multiply him and multiply him and multiply him. I'm going to make him this nation. And I'm going to set this little nation in the midst of all the other nations. And this nation will uh, live righteous lives, and they will worship me, and they will show to everyone else that, that I am the true God, and it'll be great. So this nation gets sidelined in Egypt for a while, but eventually God saves them, brings them out. They wander around. He settles them in this promised land. They conquer the people. They settle in there to this land where they're going to worship, and they're going to showcase God and who God is, and everything goes to crap. Can I say crap in church? If I can't, tell me afterwards. We'll talk about it. I apologize. Um... So the generation that conquers this land is faithful to God. But in Judges chapter 2, we read, There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. And so the rest of the book of Judges is this circular story where the people get settled, they have peace, they forget about God, they go and they do, their own, they do what is right in their own eyes, they worship other gods, they do some terrible things. And so God hands them over to the surrounding people groups. They have war. Then God raises up a prophet, or a, a judge, as they're called, kind of like a, a leader, a military leader. They take over the land again. They get settled. Praise God. It's awesome for like 10 or 20 years. And then they forget about God, and they start worshiping other gods again. Rinse, repeat, for like 23 chapters. 21. And so we get to the final line of judges through this cycle over and over and over again. And the last line of the book of Judges says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The end. So God has established his people in the promised land. This is his primary plan for showing himself to the world, to saving people. And, and, and the people have forgotten God and are doing their own thing. That's no good. I mean, this is... This was the plan. And it seems to be failing. 
And that brings us to our passage this morning, starting in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. There was a certain man from Ramathim, a Zuphite from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, son of Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuph, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. One was called Hannah and the other Peninnah. Peninnah had children, but Hannah had none. Uh, just as a quick aside, <laughs> uh, red flag in Scripture anytime you read, so-and-so had two wives. <laughs> um, if you read that and you think, oh, great, I can have two wives, incorrect. <laughs> if you take nothing else this morning, please do not go and try and set up. Yeah, anyway, what happens in <laughs> Scripture every time someone has multiple wives is everything just goes south so quick, especially when frequently one wife has children and one wife does not. And we see that very quickly here. Year after year, this man went up from his town to worship and sacrifice to the Lord Almighty at Shiloh, where Hophni and Phinehas, the two sons of Eli, were priests of the Lord. Whenever the day came for Elkanah to sacrifice, he would give portions of the meat to his wife Peninnah and to all her sons and daughters. So they would sacrifice a bull or something. They would devote some to the Lord. They'd give some to the priests, and they would eat the rest together, kind of celebrate But to Hannah he gave a double portion because he loved her, and the Lord had closed her womb. And because the Lord had closed her womb, her rival kept provoking her in order to irritate her. This went on year after year. Whenever Hannah went up to the house of the Lord, her rival provoked her till she wept and would not eat. Elkanah, her husband, would say to her, Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why are you downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than ten sons? What a sweetheart. Once when they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh, Hannah stood up. Now Eli the priest was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you only look upon your servant's misery and remember me, and not forgive your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life, and no razor will ever be used on his head. As she kept on praying to the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was praying in her heart, and her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard. Eli thought she was drunk and said to her, How long will you keep on getting drunk? Get rid of your wine. Hannah replies, Not so, my Lord. I am a woman who is deeply troubled. I have not been drinking wine or beer. I was pouring out my soul to the Lord. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman. I've been praying here out of my great anguish and grief. Eli answered, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. She said, May your servant find favor in your eyes. Then she went her way and ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. And early the next morning they arose and worshipped before the Lord, and then went back to their home at Ramah. Elkanah lay with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So in the course of time, Hannah conceived and gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. Samuel literally means asked of the Lord in Hebrew. Okay. So Hannah waits until Samuel is weaned, probably like between the ages of three and six. Uh, And she takes him back to Shiloh to the place of worship and dedicates him, lends him to the Lord, it says. And he's left at Shiloh with Eli, 
to serve at this sanctuary. And then chapter 2 begins with this prayer slash song attributed to Hannah, um, which is really important and really beautiful. And we're going to stand and read it together. And that's unorthodox because this is the sermon and this is the part where you just sit and relax and someone talks to you for a while. But I invite you to stand with me right now and we're going to read these nine or ten verses of Scripture together. Um, And just as a preface, the word horn, um, Hebrew word kind of means like your, your strength or your might, not like these things. Okay, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly. Let your mouth speak such arrogance. Amen. Have a seat. I meant to say before we read that, uh, imagine you're Hannah and reading those words. I mean, we, we read it in church and we do the usual uh, kind of funeral drone reading through these scriptures, which I'm not sure there's another way to do it. It's really hard to like say something with a bunch of other people like that and not just kind of plod along. But this song, this is, this is celebratory. This song, this song is, 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 is reveling. This woman w- was tormented for years and years and was given a child. This is praise if there was ever praise for the mighty character of God. This is praise to God because what, what we see in this song, this is God's MO. This is God's main way of doing things. To humble the powerful and, and, and to bring up the lowly. To look upon people that are forgotten or mocked, barren, and to lift them up. It is not by strength that one prevails. That's beautiful. And we see this really clearly in Hannah's story. Hannah's unable to have children, 
which in any time period, that's incredibly difficult, incredibly humbling and saddening. And I've only experienced it secondhand, so I can't really imagine. But we all know someone who's been touched by that. That's hard no matter who you are. But in her culture, barrenness was a sign of public shame. I mean, we see this played out when her sister wife, Penina, like torments Hannah because of her barrenness. To the point where Hannah wouldn't weep, she wouldn't, or she would weep, she wouldn't eat anything, she was just a mess. And so in this one trip to worship, she brings sacrifices to God, she's praying fervently, passionately to God, begging him for a child and promising that were she to receive one, she would devote him to the service of the Lord, which is amazing. And we look at that and say, what an example. But the priest on duty that day didn't think so. Eli looks on her with scorn, assumes she's a drunkard. He scolds her. As a priest, he values propriety in worship, especially in this sanctuary, which is reserved for ritual sacrifice. So he looks on this woman and he thinks, this isn't how we do things here. Didn't someone tell you? And then miracle of miracles, she conceives. She has a child. She bears a son. God raises up the lowly. God looks on this woman who's mocked by Peninnah and wrongly rebuked by Eli. God looks at this woman who, if she walked into the sanctuary right now, a lot of us would look sideways at her. Maybe out of pity, maybe out of, like, discomfort. Oh, you're here. God looks on that woman, and he raises her up. He blesses her with a child, Samuel. And after giving her child up and dedicating him to the Lord, she erupts in praise and sings her song, which ends with this last line, He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. The word translated here as anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach, and we would know that as Messiah. So our song looks forward to the crowning of King David and then on to the reign of David's heir, a lesser-known figure you might have heard of named Jesus. And who is it that anoints this David to be king? Hannah's son, Samuel. Remember the end of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so in the midst of that broken, directionless, idolatrous mess, God begins to powerfully intervene on behalf of his people by giving a barren woman a child. He looks at his plan to save everything that's, that's getting wrecked, and he says, that's where I'm going to start with this woman who's crying in my sanctuary, mocked, ridiculed, misunderstood. So I think to say that the moral of Hannah's song is that God exalts the weak and the lowly, it's, it's true, but it's not enough. God doesn't just lift up and comfort the lowly. He takes them and he puts them in the center of his purposes, in the center of his plans. God works his plan of redemption through those people. That's why 1 Samuel starts with this small little story of this woman crying. 
Because that's how God works. That's where God starts. That's what he does. Amen? And this is the story of the whole Bible over and over and over again. God chooses to reveal himself to all humanity in this there's no other word. This stupid little nation, Israel, who just can't get it and over and over again fall. And that's how God chooses to reveal himself to everyone. God takes this random wanderer, Abraham, who twice tries to pass off his wife as his sister to get himself out of trouble. God takes this kid, Joseph, who's sold into slavery by his brothers because he was such a, snat, a snotty-nosed brat. <laughs> Like, they just couldn't stand this kid to the point where they're like, well, let's either kill him or just send him off to Egypt. That's who God chooses. God chooses this woman, Hannah, and brings this great prophet, Samuel. God chooses Moses, a murderer and a deserter. God chooses David, this overlooked shepherd boy out in the field that no one gave a second thought to. David, the ancestor of Jesus, born in a backwater town. No one knew about, no one heard about his birth except a couple of other no-name shepherds. And this newborn child was God himself, the ultimate expression of God's delight to work through weakness, to exalt the lowly. I don't know why he likes to do it that way, but that's what he does, and we see it over and over and over. Not only does God work through the humble and the weak, sometimes he works through the the sinful as well. Amen? Sometimes God works through those we might be tempted to look down on, who we want to get out of here before we have to talk to them. The Gospel of Matthew begins with this genealogy, this long list of like, this person begat, this person begat, this person begat, this person, and on and on, all the way to Jesus, from from Adam to Jesus. And normally in these genealogies in the the Bible, um, it's traced through through the men, through the fathers. But this weird thing happens in Matthew's genealogy where there's five different women that are mentioned four in the first six verses. It's like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you doing, Matthew? So one of these was Rahab, who if, if it was the same Rahab as in Joshua 6 was a prostitute. One of these was Ruth, a Gentile, a, a non-Jew, who that doesn't really mean anything to us anymore, but kind of a scandal for her to marry a Jewish person and for her to be in the line of Jesus. He's not even a a, a pure-blooded Israelite. One of those, it doesn't even say her name. It just says Uriah's wife. Solomon had David with Uriah's wife. Her name was Bathsheba. This highlights the fact that she was not David's wife. David played peeping Tom, got her pregnant, covered it up by sending her husband off to war and getting him killed. And from from that comes Solomon and comes the whole line down to Jesus. And then the last one, the the first one mentioned in this genealogy genealogy is a person named Tamar. So 
just preface, this is all in the Bible, so don't get mad at me. Um, <laughs> Tamar's first husband dies. Uh, and according to an ancient tradition, you know, a brother of that husband was supposed to step up and marry her to produce an heir for her. Um, and this guy, Onan, he doesn't want to produce an heir for her that wouldn't be his. So, to quote Genesis 38, 9, when they would sleep together, he would waste the semen on the ground, which was seen as a wicked refusal to produce an heir for Tamar, so God puts him to death. So, Tamar's been through two husbands, no kids. She's instructed by Judah, her father-in-law, to wait till his third son grows up to produce an heir for her, but she instead decides to impersonate a prostitute and sleep with her father-in-law, Judah, and get pregnant with his child. And when he finds out that she's pregnant, he's ready to burn her alive. And she says, this is your kid. And he rightfully proclaims that she is more righteous than him. And from this stand-up guy, Judah, and his daughter-in-law, Tamar, comes Jesus. So the point is, those are the people showing up to Jesus' family reunion. So don't (laughs) pity yourself so much when you have to go to yours, because this was a mess. (laughs) Try explaining that one to someone. Not only does God raise up lowly people and work through them, God takes, takes sinners. And I know we just say sinners, but takes the people that you think are sinners, that you see and say, how could you do that? How could you live your life that way? He takes those people... And he works through them. He uses messed up, awful people, and he puts them in the center of his plans. And the most vivid example of God raising up weak, seemingly useless, messed up, awful people is us, the church. I mean, we see throughout Scripture this grand plan. We see this genealogy, and it all leads up to Jesus, and Jesus comes, and it's going to be great, and the kingdom's going to return, and then, and he dies, and he raises again, and he looks at them, and he says, you guys got this, right? And they say, we sure don't. And he says, ah, you'll be fine. I'll send the Holy Spirit. It's going to be great. And they're like, wait a minute, and then he's gone up into heaven, and that's it, right? That's exactly how it's written in the Bible. Um... He promises the Holy Spirit, and he bounces. That, that's his plan. I mean, this is one of those moments where if I'm God, I don't do that. I had a discussion with people earlier this week, and I was like, why didn't he just stay? You know? Why not? That's not God's delight. God's delight is to work through us. Us. It's weird. I mean, thankfully, his spirit and his presence are alive and at work in us and redeeming our failures at every turn. And the Holy Spirit is moving powerfully all the time. And that's really where the credit goes. But still, it's us. We are the instrument. I mean, isn't that crazy? Think about the world. Think about, just think about Pennington, Hopewell, Trent, Trenton. How do I? Trenton. 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 I don't know. Um. Apparently, I've heard there's only one T and like five N's in that word. I don't know. Think about Pennington, Hopewell, and Trenton. Think about all all the the hurt, the addiction, the, the poverty, the injustice, and the violence, and the depression, and the suicide, the hatred, 
God's answer to all of that is us. Why? Why would you do that, God? The Holy Spirit, he comes and he works in us to change all of that. And that's, that's a humbling thought when, when I consider how little I'm doing. I mean, that's a humbling thought when I consider how I can barely see past, like, the mess of my own life long enough to care at all about someone else's life. But it's God's delight to work through us, especially in our weakness, in our inability, in our unfaithfulness. It's God's delight and prerogative to work through the church, which consistently fails to be what it needs to be and will continue to fail. I know the church has failed a lot of us, and I wish I could tell you it's not going to keep happening, but it's going to keep happening. That's just, it's, it's, it's God's delight. He takes weakness and, and inability, and he takes that and he puts that in the center of his plan. It's a beautiful thing, that idea, right? It's not by strength that one prevails, Amen. But our culture doesn't really like, we don't think in terms of strength or might too much anymore. So let me like update the language really quick for us, okay? Um, It's not by money that one prevails. Amen? Oh, you still said it. That's good. It's not by education that one prevails. It's not by a prestigious master's degree from Princeton Theological Seminary that one prevails. It's not by talent that one prevails. It, it's not by practice and hard work that one prevails. Amen? But practice your instruments and your math kids, okay? It's worth it. Um, it's not by being good, upright people that one prevails. Amen? That's unsettling to me. That's not good news. I mean, I say amen because I think it's true, but that's not, that's not good news. Because <laughs> I am in graduate school, and I went to graduate school because people were like, oh, you're so talented, you're so gifted, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, yeah, maybe you're right. And I'm going there, and I'm training to become a more effective leader in the church, but it's not by my seminary degree or my talent or my education or my rugged good looks that I will prevail <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> God's action doesn't hinge on any of that. When I read Hannah's story, I get the unsettling feeling that I am not, in fact, Hannah in this story. I'm probably Eli the priest making snap judgments on people who, unlike me, need to get their stuff together. There are people in this room who are Hannah. I mean, if you're sitting in brokenness, barrenness, hopelessness, the consistent message of Scripture is that it's God's delight not just to bring you relief, but to do mighty things for the kingdom of God in and through you. That's what Scripture has to say to you. There are people in this room who are, who are Judah. Judah. Or, or Tamar, or pick any of the hundreds of biblical characters that are totally awful people, or make awful decisions. 
If your life's just a mess and you're partly to blame or mostly to blame, the consistent message of Scripture is that God's grace is big enough to redeem you and, 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 and good enough to take joy in putting you at the center of things, to working through you. So to the Hannahs and to the Tamars and the Judahs, my hope is that you will be like Hannah and pray fervently wherever you are for healing, for restoration in your life. And I will join my prayers to yours, and and God's going to work, and I look forward to seeing that. But again, when I read this story, I'm not Hannah. And I mean, I've got a decent amount of mess in my life, but not that much. Pretty okay. I wouldn't have gotten maybe highlighted in that genealogy, but when I read Hannah's strong song, I'm, 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 I'm struck by the fact that I'm not feeble, I'm not humble, I'm not weak, I'm not poor. I'm not needy, I'm not barren. And that should give me pause. That should give us pause. What if we are Eli? What if we're the sister wife? What if, what if we're the Israelites who, as soon as they get settled in the land... Forget God. What if we're the rich man who didn't follow Jesus because of his great wealth that he couldn't give up? It should be unsettling for most of us to consider that the consistent message of the Bible is that God is especially pleased to work through the weak and the lowly because we are not weak and lowly. It should be unsettling for most of us to consider that according to the viewpoint of Scripture, like we are at a spiritual disadvantage for being strong, successful, and self-sufficient. This is not the happy part of the sermon. Let's stop and think about this for a second. Strength and success are good things. Don't get me wrong, but they put us in danger. When it comes to following and relying on God and abiding in him, strength and success are disadvantages that we are warned about in Scripture over and over. Most of Jesus' miracles and healings were aimed at, at the poor and the weak and the needy, and most of his hard teachings are aimed at the rich and the powerful and the successful and the spiritually upright And you know what? Jesus aims those teachings at them because he loves them so much. And he doesn't want them to miss the good news. When he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, maybe he's not kidding. In Luke, he follows up, blessed are the poor and the weak, etc., with woe to you who aren't hungry, woe to you who are rich, woe to you when people speak well of you. Not because being poor is good and being rich is bad. That's not what he's saying. He's saying we're in a dangerous position when we don't need God. It might sound crazy, but success is not good for us. That's what we see in the book of Judges. That's what we see throughout the scripture. That's what we see in life. But all is not lost for us. 
we too, the people in this room that are not, in fact, Hannah, can still learn a lesson from Hannah. She was bereft. She was barren. She yearned with her whole being to have a child. Yet even as she prayed for a child, this blessing of blessings, she vowed that she would take that child, bring it right back, and devote it to the service of the Lord. That's amazing. So our successes and our talents and our wealth, 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 and our, our children, these are not bad things. These are great things, and I praise God that we have them. But the only proper thing to do with them is to lay them back down at the feet of Jesus. Whatever blessings you have were given to you so that you could bless others. So as spiritually disadvantaged as we are, we have a great opportunity to be used in God's purposes by laying those things down. It's our calling for all of us this morning to adjust our perspective, to expect to see God work in and through people we would otherwise look down on, to expect to see redemption happen in unlikely places. We're going to enter into a time of communion um, at this point. This is a time for members of of the body of Christ to come together and, and Remember his death on our behalf and the new life that we have. And as the servers all mill around and get ready to hand out the bread and the juice, I'm just going to ask you to do what Scripture asks us to do at this point, which is to examine yourself. Who are you in this story? If you're Hannah, this is great news. Rejoice in the surprising goodness of your God and his sacrifice for you. And if you're not Hannah, like, what do we do with that? We have to reckon with that. We have to hear Hannah's song and and understand that that's not where we're at. As we prepare to share in, in communion and share in the fact that we are all recipients of the gracious mercy of God. Let's give thanks to God. Thanks for our gifts. And let's consider how we might humble ourselves enough that we can lay them down at Jesus' feet. All of us. Let me pray for our community. Lord God, I thank you for your mercy. I thank you that you would work through all of us. failures, in our successes. All you seek is a faithful heart. All you seek is someone who's like Hannah down before you, weeping. May we all be that, Lord. May we all understand our our desperate need for you. praise you for your sacrifice, Jesus. We praise you for coming as a, as a human, for not just saying this to us, but showing us. We praise you for being born in shame, for dying in shame.
boast and have strength 